Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Paula Price Show, where you can experience scripturally organic, culturally unmodified teaching, get answers to your questions, and receive powerful prayer from your host, Dr. Paula Price, author of the Prophet's Dictionary. Tune in now and get ready for an exciting time of encouragement and transformation. Welcome your host, Dr. Paula Price. Do we really know? The answer is no. And differentiating between how long we've been on the planet versus how old the planet actually is. I think that human beings are a lot like children with their parents. We really don't think that our parents had a life until we were born. We see pictures of them when they were younger or before we were born. It's like, what is this? When did you do that? I don't remember that. And I remember the day my mother told me, well, you know, I had a life before you were born. You know, that's what I wanted to say. And that's how we really treat God. Like, he really didn't do anything until he created us. There really wasn't that much going on until he said, let there be. And then even let there be in us, we're in the same breath as far as we're concerned and as far as how we teach it. Well, that's not the case. And so we are going through, as apostles and prophets should do, unlocking those mysteries unlocking the things that have been hidden, that have been buried. And you can tell, first of all, humanity is so corrupt that they take any ounce of piece of revelation that they have and they try and misconstrue it and turn it into something else. And it's for sure we try and uh, mutate it. I mean, come on, we have whole comics about mutants. We just want to mutate everything that we have to turn it into something else. So you can see the wisdom of God burying his secrets. Full disclosure is nobody's idea but somebody who's corrupt because they want to know everything about you so they can do something with it that you've never had in mind, never had in mind. So he's not the full disclosure God. We just want to transparent Jesus. We just want to, no, we don't because even the things that he wrote in his word, we still haven't sat down and take time to figure out. We don't want to think through God because we don't think, well, as Dr. Price wrote many, many years ago, God is a thinker. 
And apostles and prophets are thinking opposites. Actually, all of the offices are thinking opposites. Christians should be thinking people, thinking saints, because our God is deep. And you know he's deep because, um, let's see, we can sit down and think about how many books we tell ourselves that we preach that we don't need to read. Well, definitely Revelation. Who needs that? That's the future where none of us will be here anyway. Moving on. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see, Numbers. Numbers is boring because it's a bunch of Numbers. Chronicles, 1st and 2nd. We already know. Who needs that in the modern age, right? Who needs 1st and 2nd Chronicles? Uh, let's see, Psalms. Pick the ones that make you feel good and that sound like a lullaby. We go through and teach that we don't need at least half of the Scripture in order to be a good Christian. Because to us, being a good Christian is about feeling loved by Jesus and has nothing to do with him. We, we're teaching and each broadcast and class is hitting on this in some ways, how we have become so humanist, and you can tell, because our Christianity used to be about how we come to God. And now uh, most of the language, much of the language, is about how comfortable we need to feel coming to him. This morning in Devo's prophet is he a place for the sake of the call. Man, taking it back. Taking it back. Did we used to sing songs about giving things up for Jesus? <laughs> it was understood that it was going to be a sacrifice. I was listening to Lord Harris when praise demands a sacrifice. I'll worship even then. <laughs> what? Who? Huh? Blasphemous. You know, now, blasphemous. And so I appreciate these broadcasts, but if you really want to get your head on straight about who Jesus Christ really is, the Lord God Almighty, how he really thinks, if you care enough to know, go back and study and listen to these broadcasts. Take note. Take it seriously and act like and accept that our salvation is more than an altar experience. I just remembered, oh, I just was overwhelmed, and I was crying. And then, you know what you don't find in, in the scripture? All that. I mean, when Jesus came, there was fire, there were assignments, there was power moving, healing, devils being cast out. There was a whole lot that uh, is catalytic. You know, our salvation is catalytic. It's supposed to push you into his world and into the things that he's doing. So today's audio archive of the week is from actually the Sunday after the 9-11 terrorist attack. And uh, it's called Vengeance is Mine. And Dr. Price was speaking, and it's, it's kind of uh, eerie almost to go back and listen, remembering where I was and where I was when I saw on the television the towers um, I think they were both still standing, but they were, you know, one was smoking and thinking it was a movie because in so many movies we blow up New York City. I mean, how many times have we blow the place up? And actually in Dr. Price's message, she talks about how prophetically we have played our destruction out over and over and over again cinematically. And I thought that's so true because when I saw in television, I was like, oh, I wonder what movie that is, and kept walking to class. Didn't even think that our actual nation was under attack because we have attacked it ourselves in Hollywood countless times. Countless. Terrorists, natural disasters, unnatural disasters. We don't even know what kind of disasters. All of it. Taking out aliens from the outside in, the inside out, diseases, infestations, infections over and over. And she said a statement in the beginning. She said apostles and prophets don't have the luxury of hiding behind blind theology. Say la. You mean it's a luxury 
to hide behind blind theology? All I know is, you know you're in your theology blindly when the phrase, all I know is, and I don't care what anybody else says, and you have no explanation to substantiate what you know. <laughs> all I know is God is love. That's all I know. Nobody's going to make me feel condemnation. All I know is God is love. Well, what do you know about God's love? He loves you. He loves us. Oh, how he loves us. He connected his love with keeping his commandments. And those are things we don't want to talk about. So what do you know? So when she says that we don't have the luxury of hiding behind blind theology and how these mantles are equipped should you prove yourself worthy of God and study and dig deep enough to quarry out and dig and dig and dig through all the mess, all the muck, all the we don't even know what, false everything, doctrines of, and actually see what God says. So she was coming out of Revelation 18, 20, and she was talking about the Twin Towers falling. I really challenge all of you to go back and listen. I think I want to list out of it a few things uh, that she was prophesying. She was prophesying in real time then, and then also shared about a vision that the Lord had shown her previous to that. So it's really interesting to listen and find these prophecies that Dr. Price gave 10, 15 years ago and to see how they played out. It, it's a very easy to say in your heyday, you are a doomsday prophet until doom comes home. And then all of a sudden, you're the woman of God who couldn't have been bought by the old boob. Right. And so she talks about how she said America has been good to the nations, but America has not been good to her God. And as a result, just like back in Judges chapter 5 with Deborah, they had they changed their gods. They had new gods. Then there was war at the gates. And when you change your gods from the one we serve, you're bringing war home. War is coming right to your gates. And, and we have, since from then until now, had attack after attack unprecedented in our nation from rogue things. Now, we know about historically what has happened on this land to different people groups. But as far as just outbreaks, school shootings, little kids, colleges, uh, people at concerts, nobody knows why this person just opened fire and kill 300 people. Nobody knows. And each, each year it's become the worst, the worst, the worst. Just outdoing, outdoing, bombs and explosions going off all over the place. What has happened to America's edge? Well, what has happened to America's God? What did America do? We were so thrilled and excited when President Obama stood up in Cairo and said America is not a Christian nation because there's this uh, God and that God and this and that and it was like ooh yeah and see we want we don't realize what that statement meant coming from the head of the nation that was voted into office twice and so she talked about that and she said uh, how she had a, a vision of a beast in America I want you to buy the download to hear what that vision was and I was like ooh. That is crazy. And again, and even that vision has been depicted in many films since then. Many films, tearing up all over the place. And she said that uh, God doesn't change without a fight. He 
You know, he doesn't change without a fight. He doesn't change you without a fight because we know we're fighting. We want to we wanna prophesy the change, not be the change. We want to sing about the change and actually not have to change. We, we're going to talk about going and tearing down the enemy's camp but staying home safely hiding behind social media. Oh, no, but I can't stand out there. I might lose my job. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to take a stand because then I might be ostracized. Well, then my family might not talk to me. So are you really taking a stand for Jesus Christ? And to what extent are we going to say enough is enough? When are we really going to say for Jesus' sake, not for ours, but for him, enough is enough? We're putting our foot down. Leaders pushing back on all of this culture moving in. All of this culture is other gods and demons and devils moving in, masquerading as Christianity. When are we going to say enough is enough and raise the standard back up in our own ministries? No, we're going back to a dress code that is worthy of a king. Forget how comfortable. When you go home after church, you go put your, your, your cozy clothes on. Right, but no, I'm saying that, you know, raising the standard back up so that we're addressing worthy of a king. We, you can tell we hardly sing about him being a king anymore. We hardly worship about him being a king anymore. So you know all of that is part of the strategy to bring the whole institution down, one standard at a time, one belief system at a time, grouping them together, infiltration. This has been a very intelligent, subtle, yet overt plan that has been in place for years and years and years. I remember being a kid in my church. Uh, let me think of this one. It was before I came to college, so this was probably about 20, 25 years ago, and there was the pressure to come out of the choir ropes, to be able to bring the dress code down, to do whatever. At the time, I had a pastor who really didn't care. No, we're not doing that. But systematically, over time, over time, now I look back at things I don't even recognize at all. At all. And it's like, wow. One of the universities in town. Chapel went dark. Black walls, black, dark everything. New president came in and he said, we're bringing this thing back to make it look like a chapel again. And then he left and then it went back to being dark. So we are, you can tell the darkness has moved in because the darkness has actually moved in. <laughs> we keep lights on. Light on for Jesus. I am the light of the world. Tell me why you need to be in the dark to worship. And so this audio archive is so profound. Uh, it does sound cassette audio. I, I'm going to tell you the quality on that is very cassette. But you can definitely understand everything that Dr. Price is saying. We would have put it out there um, if you couldn't. But it's, it's worth it. How I feel about these audio archives is like when you read the inscription about the prophets, they find the scrolls. <laughs> it's like, oh, Josiah. Yes, he found the scrolls. Like, this is how we, this is, I found the Lord. I found his word. I found that the word of the Lord was rare. I keep saying, just because a lot of people are talking on social media does not mean that God is talking through this. And it's easy to miss that the Lord is actually not speaking through that many people at this time. A lot of people are running their mouths. But he is not, in fact, speaking through them. A lot of people are sounding off, talking, shucking, bucking, doing whatever, being very charismatic. There is no shortage of charismania running around. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is, is speaking. And you can tell because when you hear somebody who is speaking for the Lord, you stop. It's like, ooh, huh, 
there's a weight to what they're saying. And it doesn't, weightiness doesn't necessarily mean like deep and convoluted, but you'll say it's deep because it's hitting you in a deep way. It's going into your spirit. It's crushing your soul. You're like, oh, that was deep. So sometimes uh, you'll say something is deep and people will think that means it's hard or it's complicated. No, it's going into a deep place in me. And you don't realize how much of what you hear bounces off of you. Bing, 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 bing. So come on, Holy Toast. Look, if you want something deep every Sunday, come on in. Prophetal is cracking up. We're cracking up because a lot of our saints who moved here are used to the conjured services. The music keeps you going. The band keeps you going. The preacher keeps you going. And in our sermons, we're like the word, though. We are here to learn, to be schooled in the deeper things of God. I can I blast my music all week, I promise you. In my car or whoever's car I'm driving. I'm just always in somebody's car. Thank you. Uh blasting music in my earbuds wherever I go. I can have I can tune up anytime I want. But when you come into the house of the Lord, it should be about more than working yourself up for the sake of saying, Woo! Ah, he's just taken off. See my chain, delivered heel. I mean, we leave our worship services just to worship before the word. Nobody's touching anybody but Jesus. Folks laying on the chair, falling out, sweating, breaking sweat. <laughs> because he breaks out all by himself when you are postured in the right place. We're the congregation of the mighty where God stands. That's a lot of pressure, people. <laughs> That's why people start naming themselves family churches. <laughs> No standards in that, at least not high ones, with evangelical, with outreach, with this, with that. But, man, you start talking about the Lord having to show up and show himself strong, you need to come correct. And Or he just won't come at all, you know, and, and we don't like that when he doesn't show up. He always shows up. Years ago, we were in hotels. This is years, years. And somebody came, and uh, they were from another state, and they said, but you know you guys are in revival. <laughs> This is revival. And we were like, no, this is Sunday service. <laughs> this is every week. This is every Friday. I think she may have come on a Friday. This is every No, this is. Do you know that you are in revival? And Dr. Price, no, that's just my honey. You know, <laughs> he's just showing up. This is just what we do every week. I'm telling you, our church, yeah, I guess so. Compared to other standards, we are in revival. Every time we come together, we are revived in Jesus. We are alive. Walking out with less devils and more God, more Jesus, more word, all on the inside of us. But you have to work for it. You have to be willing to pay the price, whatever that price is for you. For some, it's walking away from your addictions. For others, it's letting your family know, God is calling me to this place. For others, it's saying yes to the call, finally, you know. Whatever it is, there's always a cost, but, man, the payoff in Jesus. If we could just preach about the payoff in Jesus, in serving this man. we You can tell this campaign is so slick. We preach, teach, and imply that the worst thing that could ever happen to you is saying yes to the calling on your life that Jesus has for you. Well, I have to be a prophet now. Well, God calls me to be an apostle. Oh, my God. You know the warfare that apostles and prophets are always in? I mean, the, the conversation on obeying God is just terrible. Well, you know, 
have to be a Christian artist and not a secular one. So pray for me. Half of these saints out here in the world were raised in church. Their lives go straight through hell, and they deserve it because they ask them, beg God or their parents or their pastors not to make them be Christian artists. Fine. You want to serve Satan? Let Satan take care of you. But we have such a negative narrative on submitting to the Lord, like submitting to the devil's better. We really act like people who serve Satan don't have problems. We act like we haven't seen these celebrities found, what, dead in their homes, drug overdose, STDs, all kinds of things. We act like that doesn't happen. And I'm thinking, you know the devil is slick, and you know Christians want to be dumb. Because the fact that we don't want to serve the resurrection and the life, we, because we want the things of this world. You can tell why the Bible, the scripture tells us not to be pursuing the things of this world, not to desire the things of this world, not to envy the things of this world, because you actually believe they produce a better product because those people walk around with a lot of money. And you find out behind the scenes everything else is falling apart with no hope, no redemption, no option. So we're here to tell you that serving Jesus Christ is the best thing you could ever do for your life. Because I tell you what, when you go through, you can call on the highest power and at least have a, you know, chance. Now, it's up to him to decide. But stop saying that. If that's you, stop saying that serving God is the backup plan. Well, you know, God called me off of this job. Well, you know, God, I had to obey the Lord. Well, he won't stop nagging me. He won't stop bothering me. There's no honor in serving the Lord in a lot of conversations. There's no pleasure in serving him. Uh, and we act like him. Just, I just wish he'd leave me alone. You know, my wife or my husband or my kids. People have secular jobs all the time. Their families can't stand it. You know what they say? Well, honey, it pays bills. Well, we have to have a job. Well, we have to do something, so we need to shift our attitude. We need to work through it. But the Lord is supposed to understand. Hot button knows the hot button. We have got to change our outlook and conversation on the board. But see, this is because also we have brought down what we've taught, what we're preaching to an emotional experience. Well, yeah, I guess so. Why would I walk off my life for an emotional experience? A perpetual date night with Jesus. Yeah. I have things. We have to fix it. There is a dignity that comes with serving the Lord. And we have to bring it back. We're walking around undignified. So you know we have taken away <laughs> all of this. When people come to us, they recognize there is a dignity that we have in serving Jesus. There is a way by the by how you carry yourself in every circle of professionalism, they will tell you how you carry yourself and how you dress lets them know the mentality that you have for your job. Mm -hmm. the, up, the higher up you dress, the higher up you look, the higher up you regard what you're doing. You know, I, I have to say, first of all, let's turn on something. Yes. I can push the button. Hallelujah. My button is pushed. Can I push your button? It's green. If green is the if green is go, okay. then go isn't on. She'll get a volume here. I have a volume. There you go. But you know, I thank you for sharing that. And, and, and many of you all say, 
wonder why that's a big deal, or you sit down and you talk to your I don't care about Jesus like that Christian friend, mm. because that's really the attitude. Yeah. I don't care about Jesus like that. I will deal with Jesus in the afterlife. Yes. See, that is why you don't care what you're doing in this life. Yes. But you know, Paul was, because um, I know we think everything in the 21st century is new. Uh-huh. But Paul said, your works follow, not your flesh, oh. not your body. Your body goes to the dust, but your flesh, which is your soul and your spirit, will follow you. So whatever your soul told your body to do to Christ, for Christ, or through Christ, am I switched? Okay. Whatever, whatever your body told Whatever your soul told your body, that is what God registered. He doesn't register the counsel you got from a person who loved him or hated him. He doesn't register for any of that. He says, but you have no one to teach you. In other words, God's righteousness, God's feelings, sentiments, they come by way of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost inside of you, most of you can go a year to your church and never hear about the Holy Ghost. And yet the Bible says the Holy Ghost will convict you of sin. And of righteousness. And so once you mute the Holy Spirit, the standard of Christ becomes your domain. And because it becomes your domain, you do as you feel or as you, you are told or commanded to men. Many people, I, 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 I'm going to keep talking about this, because you think when you get to heaven, you're going to love being in a white robe. So you didn't catch that. So you think, well, I, I, I need my cut-off jeans, I need my daisy suit, I need my drop-down this and my suit-tight that and my skin-tight, I need that here. And so you think because you uh, wear it here and you have the latitude to make the decision, you actually think that you're going into God's world closed. But if your heart's unclosed, your heart can't go and get a new garment. See, there's a whole other teaching that I'm going to do and start into this a little bit next week about the garment of sin. See, there are garments that tell God you want sin. You can talk all of this, and you can say it's really legalistic, but I'm going to tell you something. The, con- the Bible is literally, those scriptures are literally God's constitution. That means they are made up of him, they're made for him, and they come from him. And so you can listen to your pastor all day long. You and your pastor better kiss up the face because you're going to be with him forever. You better bring him gifts, give him some children. You better make him really happy because, you see, the difference between God and Satan is Satan's got to take you by default. But God accepts you by choice. That's why we are the elect. See, the defect that which God doesn't want in this world again, they go where, where the defects go. Satan failed. He was a defective cherub. cherub. And he showed God where the defect, the single defect in his creation is. So you can, you can walk around there talking about, but God is love. Let me tell you something. God is love, but if God is love and you count on that, you should love him too. God shouldn't be the only lover in this relationship. Why you being a luster and a neuter. You can talk all you want. If you don't like wearing clothes here, you will hate wearing that garment in God's world. You will hate it. And God can't put it on you because his righteousness will slaughter you anyway. 
Let his master get out of it. Elvis was just trying to keep the Lord from falling on the floor. Cost him his life. Why? He wasn't clothed properly. And God had ended the indiscriminate ways people handled him when David reenacted, reinstituted the priesthood. And so at that point, what Elvis had become comfortable with, which was handling the ark any way he felt like it, looking in, doing all of the things that the Lord through Moses said he hated. And when he, so he goes and he does what he's always done. I've always taken care, taken care of the ark. I dusted it, I polished it, I kept it going. He had no reverence for it because he wasn't uh, sanctified for the priesthood. All he had was admiration and fascination. Reverence belonged to the priest because only the priest could tell you what that God likes, doesn't like, feels like, etc. which is why so many pastors are ceasing to be priestly. And they're, because they're making you whatever. So when we start talking about this over the next couple of weeks, we'll have a few pop-ups next week. We'll talk about this. But you need to understand that God says any garment spotted by the flesh is condemned. So you wear fleshy outfits. You know, you wear the ones. You don't just wear clothes. No, no. You've got to wear the ones that show your, your liberation from God's righteousness. You are liberated from God's righteousness. See, it's kind of like... Um, you know, it's kind of like um, Aaron's kids. Well, see, um, we, we, we took fire. I mean, who makes, who makes um, him more, more righteous than us? And Aaron's sons go in and they try to treat God like the world treats him. And you won't treat God like the world because you're really serving the God of this world. And, and, and it was able to get away with it because nobody said it. You're so proud of yourself. You listen to how many Christians, Apostle Ashley, how many Christians are proud to say that they blow God off, and he's okay. That they, they, they get high, and God doesn't do anything. And they go naked, and they fornicate, and they adulterate, and they do all of these things, and they're proud that they have breached God's um, rules and his government. And it's, how about this? His good pleasure. Because see, the before they came along, they were God's pleasure. Because laws come from the pleasure or the displeasure of the king. And you all today, you're so proud of yourself. I don't have, we can cut, we come to the pulpit, and you got little sheep, these little lambs walking around here talking about, well, my preacher cut, so it must be all right. It's never going on the lamb that that queasy feeling, that ilky feeling that they felt in their spirit was God telling them it's not all right and flee as fast as you can. So you have to make up your mind because I promise you, and I'm telling you, anybody, everybody out there who says, I know Jesus, and I know him well, and you deny him in your behavior and conduct, God doesn't listen to the words of your mouth because he knows they're the words of his adversary, seeking to, to deceive and defraud his body. Because he said, when you know Christ, you know his experience. You're so caught up in your experience, you have no idea what his experience is, and you don't care. But God has an experience with his creation. He has an experience. He has from, from his world to this one, to hell and back again. Can you imagine? God has gone from heaven to earth, earth to hell, hell to earth, earth back to heaven. You understand? He's going to hell for you and back again. And if that's not enough, he said, I've got nothing else for you. I really have nothing else to do. Enjoy what you have. 
eat, drink, and be married, for, for tomorrow you die and stay dead. See, when they said it in the Old Testament, there was hope. Now, there was a hope that God would look at their, look upon their sin as something that they could do nothing about because they were compulsively driven to sin because of the sin nature. When God takes that nature out, you've got nothing else. What you have is rank rebellion, and you end up having the same, when he said that you fall into the same condemnation of the devil, you, you literally do. Satan had no reason to sin. He had no reason to tear up creation. He had not one reason. God didn't give him a reason. His world didn't give him a reason. His citizens and, and uh, compatriots didn't give him a reason. He had no reason to sin, which is why Jesus said he made the decision of his own accord. When you, after you've gotten on the other side of the new birth, and you have the Holy Spirit inside, and you have your brand new spirit, you have all of the equipment that he has. And he snuffed. He cast off. He cast off into that. Lucifer cast off God's righteousness. Free will. That was what he used his free will to do. And so you think, because I know you all have been told that you can't dirty your spirit, and once saved, always saved, and all of that. But if once saved, always saved was true, then why is it that Lucifer, who knew nothing but salvation, ended up introducing condemnation? I'm going to keep playing this up because I've got a lot of apostles, um, uh, colleagues, and peers out there that I love dearly and admire greatly. But I need us all to get on the same page. We're the clean-up group. We're not just the repairers of the breach. You can't repair a thing until you clean it. You've got to clean off the dust, clean off the this and the straws. And so you need to think about this. When you make up your mind to continue in your sin after you've been saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, there is nothing else God can do but let you add your way because you, he put you in a peace status above that that, that the cherub was in. And you decide to go and what? Bring him. God's not going to let you bring Satan's cronies to heaven. That's not going to happen. They're not going to ride in your soul and, and say, well, because your soul is clean on the outside, that they can get back in. You have to understand that your experience in this whole thing is secondary to God's experience and the experience that God had when he decided to do what he did. See, God has experience with you. So when God says to you, um, depart from me, you work of iniquity, he's not saying it because you hurt his feelings. Because he's lived your, your whole life with you hurting his feelings and not caring. This is one-sided. We've got this one-sided gospel. And as far as these pastors are concerned, the one-sided gospel is what determines what happens, and that is not true. You are late in the program. Humanity is late. That's why Jesus is the last Adam. A lot of you preach, have heard of preach, he's the second Adam. But Jesus is the last Adam, which means there will not be another Adam. And Jesus is always archetype in the prototype of everything God is doing. Firstborn of creation, firstborn over the church, firstborn from the dead, firstborn. Firstborn of humanity. Jesus is always firstborn because he's who God has for a, uh, who God uses as a prototype. So you, that's why Satan hates him. 
Because who can live up to Jesus? But you were made in his image and likeness. So living up to him should be a lot easier for you than it is for a devil. Because you were made of his image and likeness, and then you were born again of his spirit, of his life and his blood. So you can listen to those pastors. I promise you, you're going to regret it. And many of you young people, you're having a heyday now. <clears throat> but when you get old, older and those sentiments are in, your, in the, the uh, ecology of your reproductive self and pass on to your kids, you're going to have a fit when you realize that the, your kids are going to be what you are, carry on what you did. And you're going to suffer. A lot of you all, your kids are suffering because you trained them to dislike God, to disrespect God, to mock Christianity, to smirk at his truth. This, your family right now is you. Because we say that. We say, well, you know, I raised him in the church. You did not raise him in the church. You raised him while you were in the church. And you kind of thought this thing fell on folks like on a flower or something. Because when you raise your kid in church, even if they resist it and plan to leave it, they reverence God. Now, there'll be, there'll be the kids that say, when you really raise them in church as opposed to force them to just sit there while you went and had your parents. But these are the kids that say, you know what? I don't, I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not interested in being a Christian. However, I don't mess with it. They call it the man upstairs. They have that real down the hallway into the corridor place and, and, and regard for him. He's that hallway with the door that no one ever opens. They don't want you to open that door in their life. They're okay. But when you raise kids that really are as foul as your kids are today, your kids are fornicators, your kids are adulterated, your kids are, are homosexuals, your kids are murderers, criminals. Oh, when you, you raise your kids to that and you thought because you felt like, they were your little boo-boo, so you were just not going to upset their world. You felt God was endeared, was endeared to that. But let us not forget Eli's son. God kills them and loves killing them. He did. I know you think that there are times up, but God loves slaughtering sin. He loves it. He loves killing sin. He loves killing off devils. He absolutely gets thrilled at it. And if the devil happened to be in you, hey, all the better if you don't want to change. The issue that I want to leave you with on this subject today, the thought that I would like you to take away is this. God hates sin. Now, that is not a theological statement. That is not a moral statement. That is not even a uh, humanist statement. God hates sin, because in God, as creator, just like you hate it when your cake falls, you hate it when your fences don't hold up, you hate it when you repair something and it doesn't hold up, or you have to do it with defective materials. You, Everybody can tell you how wonderful it is from the outside, but you as the creator, you hate it. And you make up in your mind that as soon as you can, you're going to fix it, or you're going to live with it till you can do away with it. That's what sin is to God. Sin is God having made, he said, God made man upright, and man invented many skills. Creating us was not the issue. The big risk God took was not making us robots, but giving us free will and animating us to exercise that will as we please. 
So God's big risk was not your body. His big risk was your will and your heart. That's what He took a big risk on that, which is why he could say in Genesis, and it repented God who made man on the earth. Like, well, why? He didn't say he was sorry for making man. He didn't. So day six, he was happy as a plane. You know, day 71, you know, might have been a little different. But God was happy about man reproducing himself. He said, but he repented him to make man on the earth. Read the text. Which means God's issue had to do with what was on the earth that he subjected humanity to. So, they said, well, then why would, why would he make man? Because he put us in a body. Because we were made in his image and likeness. Our body had to be comparable to his image and his likeness. And so God goes on and he says, and, 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 and talks about how my spirit will not always strive with man. Because we were no longer his product. The moment Adam sinned, God moved into damage control. He couldn't get to reparations for Jesus. Jesus is the repairer of the breach. He is reparation. So he's damage control. And and as damage control, he now has to extend everything about the creation that was meant to be a a one-of-a-kind. He's got to extend it so he can purge it through every reproduction. So his mode changes. Modality was with Adam before the fall, one thing. We visit, we talk, we have conversation. He gave a wife. He blessed the wife. He gave Adam some companionship. That's one thing. But once earth fell, which is where we're going today, if you haven't had an opportunity, let me say this now, interject. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to last night or yesterday evening pop-up, you should. You should listen. And you should understand we talked about the differences in God's world. Because much of what we are talking, we're calling doctrine, much we are authorizing or authenticating as theology is only the tail end. We are the tail of the thing, the head of the thing. So no. So we have the head, we've got the body, and we are the tail. And so when you, when you go and listen to it, <clears throat> what I'm saying today is going to make much, 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 much more sense. Okay, I'm getting water. Did you get your coffee? Because, you know, I like coffee. Right? But in the grand scheme of life, there's something that <clears throat> water does that no one can do. So we, we talked a little bit about there is a spirit in man. And that spirit in man is human breath, but, and that spirit gives life to the mind, to the body, the spirit, and the soul. All right? And it's wind. I like the wind piece because Jesus says we're born again by the spirit of God or the breath of God. And I mean that over and over again. God breathes. In case you didn't know, God breathes. One of the things that make us interesting here, make me interesting in the information that I give you, is because I deal with what's most curious to me. Most, most, most churches are going to deal with 
what's most interesting to you. Going to deal with with most what's most needful to you. I talk about what's most fascinating to you. You are fascinated by your maker. You are intrigued, saved, unsaved. I don't care what your religion is. You all are. That's why we all have a, a theology, a creation theology, and all of that. But, but what I give you are the fine points that distinguish our God, the creator of heaven and earth, from all of the other deities. And we talked last Friday about all of the other deities. And we talked about that, that you know, the whole table of nations, 70 nations that God, that we have 192, but they're all branches and offshoots. But if you're talking about uh, singularly individual genetically constructed nations. God says they're seven, and he took one for himself. Jacob is the only, literally the only nation that's coming from and, and, and set, become the spirit of God through Abraham. And so when you talk about these nations, we think nations have to do with, yeah, well, those are generation spirits. No, these are not generation spirits. These are literal genetic principalities. They are literally genetic principalities, and God's saying they're 70. Now, as creator, I'm thinking he probably knows that. So 70 spirits were given principality control and dominion over humanity. <clears throat> 70. And only one is Jesus Christ. So Jesus is like, <clears throat> I got one. And the rest of you all, all of the Gentiles, you have the rest of these until I come to change the gene pool. I will buy it back. I will purge it. I will slaughter the Gentile tree and put in mine by engrafting you and then engraft you into Israel or Jacob. And so, uh, please hear this. I hope you're getting this because, I, I, you know, every time I start this, the Holy Ghost starts talking with me, etc. And so I want you to hear this. So in God's mind, when God decides to settle the nation, he's bringing them down to the 70. And really 69. And you know the devil's number 69. He likes that number. So what does he know? how God branched his seed off to 70 spirits. And so, and then from there, the nations are born. Because sometimes we don't know how do we become a nation. A nation, look up the word. Don't be one of those things that just get on into that nature that doesn't bear witness with your spirit. If your spirit doesn't have a peak education, it doesn't make a difference. Because <laughs> stupid will bear witness to your spirit. Idiotic will bear witness to your spirit. But your spirit, you, if you're going to talk to me about your spirit, I need you to tell me about your spiritual education. How highly developed is your spirit? How informed is your spirit on Christ? How informed is your spirit on God's creation? I wrote this book to give you an opportunity to upgrade your spirit, to educate your spirit beyond theology. I have nothing against theology, but theology is about humanity and the culture and its reaction to God, its duties to God. Very few revelation will always teach you about the God that started it all. 
So 69 of the, in God's world. Now, I mean, you could talk about all of this stuff where we broke down this and whatnot, but these are all blended. These are blended, which is what Daniel said. Daniel said, Sam, said, by the time you get to the end, they will have mingled with the seed of men. When, you know, and so you have got to get it in your mind that if you don't understand the archetypical, you will not be able to dis- distinguish, detect, or define the prototypical. Because prototypes come from archetypes. So now, so God's got these, all of these spirits. <laughs> and he said to him, yeah, you want Adam. You did. You want Adam. He said, but I got another Adam. He said, I gave you the downgraded version. But I have another one that's superlative. Now, this one you, you created to kill, but I have one that is made to give life. For in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all shall be alive. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That whole chapter, we're going to walk that one day, and it's going to really bless you. So here we are. So God says to Adam, I just want one seed. And that one seed, it wasn't the seed of Jacob when he chose it. It was actually the lineage that Jesus Christ would come through. And, and we would come through that lineage with Christ because we were in him before the foundation of the world. So as Christ traveled down the human genome, or gene pool, so did we who were in him, living every aspect and every element of humanity along the way. Because we, we can look at, okay, from Adam and then Cain, neither Cain nor Abel had children for God. That's why they're written out of the genealogy in Genesis 5. And we know when God starts again, with sex. And by the time we get to sex, the miscegenation has become very thorough, very comprehensive. And so now, this is a thing that this whole process is sifting, sifting the wheat from the tares. So you should know this. You're a Christian. You should know what sets you apart. You should know why God put, gave the world to us. And you should know why Satan is hard, how angry, because he did. And you should know why we fail God by not overcoming or conquering Satan's temptation. See, because it was inevitable, his temptations are real. He tempted David with um, Bathsheba, and then he tempted David with an egotistical senses. He does what he does. And so you have to know when he's coming to test your seat of authority, he's coming to test your dominion, he's coming to test your your fruit, but he's also coming to test the state and content, the condition and content of your heart, because that's where your will is after this. So getting back to this, because there's a spirit in man. So God made man spirit. Now we got on this because I said God made man on day six, and he, the humanity was in God, safe and found. What does that mean? That means that humanity was safe and found from the adversary who had already torn up God's heaven and then turns around and um, is banished to earth and obviously earth is prison. Said, a lot of you, you know, I always listen to people say, well, you know, earth is heaven and hell. You got to know uh, earth is hell 
and heaven's cut, heaven's mitigate. Heaven mitigates earth, doom, and darkness. So when we talk about there's a spirit of man, we're saying that, that there's the breath of man, the air of man, everything that pertains to humanity is what God gave us on day six. So Job 32.8 explains that. Because we don't hear about the soul until we come to earth. Isn't that good? So we don't know, and, and, and we don't know that there's a body because our body is God's body. Day six, our body is God. We're literally sharing God's body. We're literally sharing the body of Christ. Day seven, we're fellowshipping with the Godhead in their body. We're, our body is theirs. I mean, there's a whole, oh, my gosh, y'all can have a lot of roundtable implications, et cetera. <clears throat> so we didn't just become the body of Christ on Pentecost. I thought y'all might go flat. You know, y'all get a little upset if I don't get annoyed. Okay. So we think that we became the body of Christ on Pentecost, and that is not what happened. We, we literally, the same way that God blew into Adam's corpse the breath of life, the Holy Ghost transports us from God's body, from God's literal self to earth so that the Holy Spirit can blow us into our mature human vessel. So we came and see, we'll leave as people. Is this all right? And why do we need to know that? Because you need to be able to speak, to articulate the nuanced differences between the lineage of Jesus Christ and that of the other 69 spirits and also understand why people must be born again. Now, when you think about the Jews, they, you know, they represent God's physical self. They created the vessels that God would switch out from the God of this world to himself. So they gave God the material. What was unique about them? The spirit of faith. Abraham believed God. And it, account, it was accounted to him for righteousness. But listen to this. He believed God because the Bible said Abraham was not moved from his faith in God. He was rock solid, transformed into a literal entity of faith. Now, when we think faith, we think a whole lot of things. But, you know, I kind of, I, I really do like when I get to teach um, this thing. I, ooh, that was accidental. What a nice assignment. But when I think about it, you know, because I wrote this out at home and my book is home. You know, but when I think about faith, you think about literally faith is a, listen to me, it's a faculty. So the first thing, give me one piece of faith if I'm looking at my book. Thank you. Faith is a faculty. Now, if you listened to um, Apostle Ashley's broadcast, she broke down faculty. Isn't that something? So faith is the first thing you want to know about faith is that it's a faculty. It is how, it, it is everything a faculty brings to you. That's what faith, because Hebrews 11 says faith is the substance.
of things. Substance means like the cake batter. Your cake batter is faith. It's the substance of what? Your, the evidence of your case. You want to have a case. So faith is a faculty. And, and what makes it a faculty is because it's also a facility. Faith facilitates the evidence of what you're, what's happening before you get it done. Your cake in your mind is just as done when you're in the supermarket collecting ingredients as it is when you take it out of the oven. So faith is a faculty. So you not, you have to get that together. And it's a faculty that facilitates. All right? And then faith, we always treat faith as an, as an attribute when it's really an actionizer. Faith actionizes what it is you want to bring into existence or actionizes your hope. Now, evidence is a symbol of hope. So all of the attributes or the symbols or the pieces, instruments, implements, that you have, all of that is towards your hope. So if you don't have a hope, you don't need faith. That's why so many people don't have faith in Christ, because they don't have a hope in him. He's not their hope. Their hope is money. Their hope is business. Their hope is power. Their hope is a lot of things. So faith is a facility that facilitates and the actionizer that literally actualizes or brings into existence what you're hoping for. Faith is also an implement. It's implements that get things done. In the word implement, you find instruments. You find uh, institutions and a whole lot of other things. But faith is an So we have the faculty that facilitates, the actionizer that actuates, and then the instruments that execute. So it's literally the instrument that installs what you're made in your world or installs itself in your hope, so your hope will stop being mental, and it will become physical. Isn't that powerful? So we have that, and then we have faith is literally the technique. It's the technique or the tools of your technique, because faith literally has to be operated or handled like you would any other implement or instrument, depending on what you want to do. So your faith literally has its own faculty for this, because this is the functions of it, so you understand functions of faith. So it has its own faculty that facilitates. It has its own act and literally actionizes things that take all this dormant stuff. You know, when you get a prescription or you get a, uh, uh, an over-the-counter drug that says these are the active ingredients and then these are the inactive ingredients. And so... You, you understand that. So there are certain, uh, certain things that just kind of bring the potency down or either strengthens the, uh, uh, the uh, prescription <clears throat> formula. So you need to know that because, see, I'm giving you the, these formulas so you know, understand why your faith is stuck. And so we have the actionizers that actuate, and then we have the instruments, literally the instruments slash ingredients. Because you need those ingredients. There are ingredients to the hope. Every hope doesn't have the same ingredients, just like every cake doesn't have the same ingredients. So you don't even know what your hope is made of or any of those kinds of things. So you have that, and then you have, excuse me, then you have your teeth for your tools and techniques. You need tools 
Your faith needs tools. Which one of the tools works? Faith without work is dead. So the major tool of faith is working it out, working on it, working through it. Work is a major tool of faith. Research, knowledge, study, information, experimentation, exploration, all of those make up your faith tool so that you know what you're doing, not just waiting on the Lord. When we think about faith without works, work is literally starting out with investigation and then ending up with manifestation. Faith without works is dead. Now, who knew that better than Paul based on Abraham's faith? Abraham did not just believe God because God said that that he was going to make him a father of many nations. Abraham's belief moved him to act. That's why there's faculty and action. If you never move, your faith is a fantasy based on what's fascinating you at the time. So God is a God of faith, and everybody that God accredits faith to acted. They didn't just sit and wait. A lot of you all, I'm coming home soon. No, you're not. Because you don't believe God wants you to come home. You believe that it's a good idea. You don't like where you are. You want more. Because when God wants you to do something, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And he told him a condition. But you need to get up and leave your family and leave your father's land. So that was his first that he left. And then he said, go to a land where I will show you, which means I don't, you, I'm not telling you where you're going to end up because you're going to try to go the way you want to go. So if you don't know where you're going to end up, I can lead you the way I lead you to a way you've never known before. So then we have that. And then, you know what I really love about it is that the last part, the H, is hope fulfilled. Hope fulfilled. When you read Hebrews 11, and they're all talking about the, um, the what they call the hall of faith, every one of those people had to physicalize the thing that God told them to do. They had to leave. They had to suffer. They had to war. They had to have babies. They had to marry so-and-so. They had to do something. So most people in their faith are stuck at between F and S. We never get to implement, which is also instrument, the instrumentality of it. They never get to the instruments of their faith. They don't know. So you have nothing to implement. Because you don't act. Because until you get to, and most of our come home with you will tell you, until you got the post, well, you didn't know what you were going to do. You couldn't know. Because you don't know the land. You don't know the environment. But you know that whatever you were going to do is what God ordained to be done by you. in another land. And so Abraham did that. Now, I don't know whether he fussed or, or whatever, but whether he grumbled or not. Sarah seemed to have been a pretty good at grumbling wife, but she also was a wife that believed that her husband had a real relationship with his God, and she could trust his union with his God. 
See, most of you all, if your spouse doesn't trust your relationship with God, your union with God, then they don't accredit you with uh, fidelity. They think that you're manipulating them. They think that you are walking, trying to make them go into something they don't want. When you are really, really persuaded of God, God changes your family towards you because they realize you're not faking. Yeah, you'll have to test a little time because God's going to let them test you in every regard to make sure that you understand that God comes first and they are now second. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, whatever. But God will allow, he will stir your family up to firm up your faith. He will cause, because the more you have to fight for God with your family, the more God is convinced you'll fight for him with the world. <clears throat> because if all it takes is for your family whining, crying, and going through to knuckle under, then you can rest assured that God will not use you <clears throat> like that in the world. I don't care how big it's the numbers. You'll never have the, the, the access to his people, soul. That the one who has laid it all down. As Abraham had a habit of doing hard things for God. Most of you all, you're addicted to doing hard things for your family. And doing easy things for Christ when it's convenient. So when you step out and you, when you have that Abrahamic call and your family start whining and crying and carrying up, you, you know not had problems because they have to split. But God does not, he will, he will, let me say it this way. Just let me say it like this. God will literally dismiss or indulge your family's misbehavior as long as you stay on the word. When you get off the word, your family goes to pop because you were the reason that he was indulging them. They were not his choice, but you were. And God backs the chosen and, and moves to make sure that the chosen are not destabilized by the family. So there are a lot of things he will indulge your family with, all of their crazy. But the minute you get off your place, your family is fair game for hell. Because that's what they were before he called you. And I had this conversation with people over and over again, and they bring me that family rhetoric. And God says, I went to God once and he, about my own stuff. And I said, well, God, you know, my friend, this is way, way back. Because, see, I don't need one less. <laughs> I don't get, I don't say that. I get promoted. <laughs> and so I went to God and I told God about all of this. I didn't want to serve him. I mean, I, I mean, with the nice and serve. Actually, I was just talking about a con. But, because it's a con. It is. It's a con all day. And so, I went there and I gave God all of my reasons. I was married because, you know, I was using a little theology. God hates theology. They'll say him hates it. And so um, I, I'm giving him, like, theology. I gave him a few little pieces of doctrine that I had learned in my 30 seconds in him. And, um, and God said one day, he said, I will never forget. He said, is that a problem? He said, because I can move the problem because I put too much in you. If God does not, react to you saying that is because you're just a filler. And that's not a bad thing because we need fillers. I love Jelly Jonah. They fill it. I love it. I love the cheese and the macaroni. It fills it up for me. So there's nothing against that. But when God puts weightiness in you, when you are carrying that weight of glory, you can rest assured God will take your whole household out. Paul said, 
But if I do it willingly, I have a reward. But if I do it grudgingly, a dispensation, and we think dispensation means a season of time, because that's what you heard theologically. No, dispensation is I have the substance of what this generation needs and must have for God to redeem it or reserve it for redemption. And so he said, my mouth has got to be speaking on these issues. My education has got to be used because my education has now been fused with this dispensation. My experience, my expertise, my joy, my gut, my boldness, my intellect, my articulation, all of that is in your dispensation, and that's in a being. See, because God doesn't just put things on paper. See, we give you the paper stuff. You get that paper, mache gospel. You know, it's pretty. You shake it the way you want, but not God. So Paul knew he was a vessel, which made him a carrier, which made him a disseminator, which made him an imparter. He had to impart it. Paul knew that. He knew he wasn't going to die until he emptied out the message. He knew that. And he said much. You know, I know, listen, I'm running my course. I can go home right now, but it's expedient for you. Why was it expedient for them? For them to keep preaching the gospel cyclically? No, because his mantle had become such a guardian that they were protected by his obedience and by what he built from what he disseminated. He said, my fear consists of you. So if you're under someone who has that kind of, of a fidelity with Christ, that kind of allegiance, God's going to keep that person on the planet as long as it takes for you to stand on your two feet or raise up others who can do the same work, equivalently. You need to understand that. So you can, if God lets you back up and go back, it's because you were called and never chosen. Because the chosen never leave them. The cho- I'm telling you, the chosen never leave them. Which is why they end up being martyred. When you're chosen, you're more than, um, you are more than, you have more than a sonic relationship with God, an audience, an audiation. You're more than that. When you're chosen, you're substance. All but the substance of apostleship. Those apostles were substance. That they weren't just essence. See, call may have an essence, but we have the substance, the substance of which is Christ. And I'm telling you, we argue just as hard as the call, but the difference between the call is that they never bought in, and God knew they never bought in. So you can leave because you were never abiding. And if you, if God is going to be the omniscient God that he is, he already knows you're going to step out. So he, he empties what little bit you have. How he gets going, because God occupied people for, you know, 70, 80, 90 years. But the chosen can't leave him. And you can hear it, you can hear it in the voice of the chosen. The call is always whining about their call, whining about how hard it is, <laughs> whining about how their family doesn't like it. I mean, my wife, I ain't putting my family on the altar of no call of ministry. That's because you weren't called. Because if you were chosen, your family would be in you on the altar. And they'd be the first to know that they're number two. If your family thinks you're number one, it's because God is. Because, well, if there's anything else, any other job, any other opportunity, you say, I'm sorry, baby. No, sugar. Yeah, oh, sweetheart, you know, this is going to be good for us in the end. No, no, no. The ch- write this down. 
and you can put it down as a quote from Dr. Paula Price, the call can lead. The chosen never want to. The chosen prays for strength, not beg for a way out, not beg for God to go and ease the waters with their family. They're like, that's my responsibility. That's not yours. The chosen never leave. I'm telling you, even if it costs them their health, their well-being, and their family. I know a lot of chosen ministers who, at essence, I mean, like Abraham, a lot of ministers have that Abraham thing where they have to put a kid on the altar. And they had to tell a wife, shut up, because you, you're about to get a pill. Abraham said to Pharaoh, you need to leave me alone. I don't make babies. You need to be quiet. You don't know what you're saying. Job told his wife, woman, you're crazy. Chosen cannot leave. Somebody, I don't know why, but somebody needs to hear that. Because, see, you're listening to other people tell you how they treated God. And, and you, most of your counsel is based on how the counselor treated God. And you don't ask God about the counselor. You just assume the counselor has God's wisdom on your circumstance. But that is not always true. There are a lot of counselors or counselors because they settled for that or they told God that's the least they would do. You just assume that when people are giving you this advice that God is sitting by helpless and non-reactive. And for some reason, he has shifted me on this. He said, because I'm telling you, the call only asks for excuses and only invents them so that they can accommodate a world they don't want to need and a world they don't want to sacrifice. The chosen know the world must change, and they know they're part of its change agent. I know it. And there are a lot of you all out there listening to me today who will agree that you know it. The chosen will go through. They'll have their midnight hours. Peter had his little three days of hell while Jesus was going through his three days of hell. The other apostles, eight of them, up in the upper room, still waiting. You know, what are we going to do? But one thing they knew, they knew they could not abandon Jesus Christ. Your pastor abandoned Christ for, for the black box, the smoking mirrors, for the you know, the freedom and the latitude, your pastor is not not chosen. Your pastor's called as a placeholder. Somebody got to gather. And sometimes the calls are very good at being gatherers for God. They are gatherers. They're going to gather the crowd, whatever. But change agents, they're very different. And so you might, uh, and I have, he said many are called. So he has more calls than he has chosen. He tells you, the chosen are few. Because they're not going to leave. The chosen are few because they're going to put it all down for me. The chosen are few because they're going to fight for me to the end. And because I have revealed myself to them in ways that I have never revealed myself to the call. Because they don't need that depth and height and scope of revelation. Isn't that good? So you can look at it. I don't care. It may take three years, but God is going to hit your family because your family's an idol. That's why so many Christian families are under attack now, because they have been told that it's not idolatry, that they are, they are doing it. It's not that. It's responsibility. 
And so God will let you know, I promise you, if you're chosen and you try to break, God's going to hit everything in your life. You're going to find yourself sitting in the car with your little feet closed and your family. <laughs> or you're going to find your family sitting in somebody's hospital bed all wired up. See, we don't tell you that. But Paul did. Paul did. And a lot of what Paul said, they didn't even put in the Bible because they thought, like, well, we don't want people to be scared of Christ. Yeah, he wants you to be scared of him. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the Jesus needs you, needs you to be good and afraid of him. Instead, you're fearing men who will die. You're fearing jobs. You're fearing disease. You're fearing everything but the one who controls it all. I'm going to give you a test. This is a great test. Can I give them this great test? Okay. I want you to start listening to ministers. I don't mean just apostles and prophets. I mean listen to ministers and see if you can find and hear the sound of a chosen versus a call. A call will, will boast about being in total control of their ministry. When they're called, they're in total control. Oh, no, well, I ain't taking that. Thing. I'm not going here. I just mm-hmm. The ideology and the individuality and the independence are the three eyes of the call. No, because God called me to do so-and-so, and that's all I'm doing. Or, and we can go that way. The call will always give you a reason for why they marginalize Jesus Christ. Because they are marginalized. They will always give you a reason for why they should get a whole lot for as little as possible. They're always superficial in their mantles and in their anointings because God hasn't given them death or something. They lack them. So they're superficial. That's not bad. Please hear me. These are just signs that you need to figure out whether or not you're a call or a chosen or whether or not your pastor is a call or chosen, or your pop, your apostle or prophet or any other five-folder or three-folder that you are working with. You need to be able to say, yeah, you listen to how secondary Christ is in the golf conversation. And I don't mean just chosen on a pulpit. I don't care if it's chosen to take care of babies. The chosen have a different mask. They have a different attitude about their assignment. Have a very different attitude, and they understand it's important. Well, God just told me to hold conferences. Case in point, going back about a decade or so, we had this whole team, team around the world prayer thing. God steps up, does the whole thing, gets all of these teams. You remember Prophet Adia, don't you? And then at the end of it, it has nothing to do with waiting for the chosen to step forward to do something with what he gathered. Nothing happened. So the kids go back all worse than what they are. That happens all the time because the call, the call cannot lead you to the finish line. They can gather you. They can groom you. They can inform you. They can enthuse you. But when it comes to moving from or going from movement to monument to establishment, they can't do it. It's not in them. Chosen has that place. So the chosen gets the blueprint. The chosen gets the outline. You understand your church by how much they tell you you're free to be you, and they don't really care about what you look like, what you do, what you say. That's called because they have no consciousness, no concept of God's consciousness on these matters. They're not policymakers. Mm-hmm. 
They're not organizers. They're not enforcers. They're not even good enactors because that's not their job. Their job is to gather and to announce. I said to come on up here, Prophet Aguirre, because I know you got questions for them. I, I said to someone recently, when you look up the words uh, propagate and promulgate, and you look them up, and often one is given for as a synonym for the other, but that's not true. Calls, the calls always propagate. You don't get a lot of propaganda from them. They propagate, but the chosen promulgates, which means they establish laws, orders, rules, etc. Look it up for yourself. So you have to find out if you are you living with a lot of organization because you could have policies, but they could be just mere dictators. This is the pastor says what we want. This is our mandate. This is what we say. The call has more than a mandate. I mean, the chosen rather has more than a mandate. It's very important that you find out who you are. Are you a called or chosen? Are you a called or chosen? And were you called or chosen before the foundation of the world? Because your calling is is without repentance. But Jesus said, I call a bunch and choose a few. I call a bunch, I choose a few. And if you're chosen, one of the things you cannot do is let go. You can't do it. You might think about it. People talk about it. You're, you're the love of your life, the love of your soul, come, come through. And God said, that's not me. You can't let him go. And the interesting thing about it is that if God forces it on the call, they tend to pout. And they tend to be very belligerent and resentful. The chosen goes through those stages, but ultimately realizes that their life is not their own, and they exist for the will of God in that hour. And you can hear it because when you're counseling the chosen, the chosen will tell you they talk themselves back into Christ. <laughs> you know, the call will talk themselves out of Christ and ministry. The chosen will talk themselves in, which is why when you are when you are a call and you decide to say, well, I'm sorry, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, or whatever, God lets you live in your delusion because God will say, okay, so if you're a child of error, if you're fond of error, then I'm going to let you roll over the erroneous. And you find out that you don't get another true word from God again until you're like Nebuchadnezzar. See, we forget those, the Bible says those things were written for our example. Nebuchadnezzar, God, God drove him crazy. Why? Because he, well, he kept acting crazy. He kept acting crazy with, with God's people and with his authority. So God drove him crazy. But the, the thing about it that set me free was when, whenever uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, but when I looked up to heaven, because I stopped looking at man, I stopped looking at nature, I stopped looking at people, I stopped looking at the natural, I stopped looking at what's obvious. He said, but when I looked up to heaven, this is, you want to be free? You want your mind free? He said, when I looked up to heaven, my understanding returned. Or another translation said, my reason returned. Because he realized what happened to me was a heaven-to-earth matter. And so he said, when he looked up to heaven, his understanding returned, and God gave him his mind back. Do you realize that people who walk away from God have to do so by another mind because they operate on the mind of the spirit that persuaded them? He said, I will send them strong delusions that they will believe a lie. They can't. You can talk truth to them 24-7. 
they will not hear it until they look up to heaven and glorify the God of heaven who drove them crazy. I have a whole section on how people are spiritually driven and things and, and are comfortable with it and become very subtle in their insanity. They no longer hear God. God knows all lives all the hundred years. So when all those years was God not talking to him. And the only people who knew God wasn't talking to him were the people close to him. And the people who agreed. And you have, you need to be careful about agreeing with people who say God told them something contrary to what they've been saying for years. Because that means a seducing, perplexing, or or what do you call it, the uh, anguishing spirit has been sent in place of the anointing. Their anointing is no longer provided by the Holy Ghost. Their anointing is now provided by the God that persuaded them to break with Jesus' truth. Wow. And so you'll never hear truth come out of the sermon. Now you'll hear truth, things truly stated. You'll hear a lot of facts, but you won't hear truth. Because they, the truth has kicked them out because he said, you have rejected knowledge and you have rejected the love of the truth. Those who do not have a love for truth will never get the truth because truth and they are estranged. When you go to and try to get Christians set free, let me tell you, the delivering Christians is not the same as delivering unsaved folks. That's why we need a different kind of Christian therapist. That's why I wrote the book 3D. Because you have to find out where the lie became the monument of the soul. Because that monument is going to hang out and hang out and hang out until you chip it down and, and etc. So those of you who are out there, you're saying, well, God understands this. No. Now, I've had times where women have said to me, I'm coming and, and, and I'm going to do this and, and my kids are going to have to do it. And my husband, I said, no, no, God didn't call you to do this. You're not a chosen. He did not choose you or your family. I prophesied to women and said, but God didn't choose your family to go through this, and it won't survive. I have told them, no, sweetheart. I said to men, well, you know, my wife is going to have to deal with No, no, no. Your wife can't survive this. And then there are others that God will say, oh, yeah, but they should survive. Because, and, and later on, I found out they were raised in ministry and they were rebellious and all that. So there's a whole lot of backstory that saints don't ever dig for. I dig for backstory. When somebody tells me that this is what I want, backstory. But I'm telling you, if your family is a hindrance, I promise you God said, I can get rid of it for you. That is why you have the divorces of the ministry. Why? Because you got that spouse that said, I didn't sign on for this. And so then you're stuck with, well, did God tell us to get married or not? You have to answer that yourself. If God is omniscient, would he have told somebody who couldn't take your future destiny to feed your spouse? Because right now, y'all running on flesh and naivety. And you're running on God, literally, God's um, classified information concerning your future. So you have to ask God, is this person in my future, not in my present? Not should I marry him now. Is this person fit for my future in you, Jesus Christ? Often you're like, well, is this my mate? Anything can be your mate. 
but who can be your union? Who can be united with you through your future? That's different. Because see, a marriage yoke and a partnership are two different things. Partnership, you may be side by side. Two entities side by side, never becoming one. But marriage requires you to be that one. And so you are yoked to each other. So instead of we having two yokes, we got one yoke holding two oxen together. One yoke fitting two necks. Because one can't do anything without the other. This whole new idea of this is my partner, are you kidding me? I did not stop my life for a partner. I could have started a business and got a partner. <laughs> well, that's what they do. Get a, get a partner. Or a sex partner. Or a gay partner. But uh-uh, that's not what God is talking about. <laughs> so I need you to recognize that some of you all, even somebody now, you're asking God about this person and all your friends, because you can't trust your friends because your friends are, are, are all locked up in romance. You know, they're the a hallmark folks. You know, anything and anybody is right about But let me tell you this now. So you're clear. Your partner, your, your spouse has to make it through your future. Your partner can be a short-term arrangement to ease your comfort, to feed your needs. <laughs> but when God chooses a spouse, you all are compatible through every step of life, every stage of your life. You're compatible. And so you can say all day long, well, I just I know God said it. If God said it, you shouldn't have been divorced. So divorce is a literal indictment against marrying the wrong person or marrying too soon. I have talked to couples, I have literally counseled couples, and I said, you know what, if you let God groom him for five years, you're going to have something. Uh, if you let God work through her issues for three years, you're going to have something. I said, but you're not going to do it together. Y'all end up falling in sin. You're going to fornicate because you don't believe in your future together. Because when you believe in your future, you put money in the bank and you said it's for a house and you mean it, I mean, you get kicked out, you live in the car, you row in boats or whatever, but you don't touch that. But see, you don't treat your future spouses like that. You don't treat them as an untouchable trust. So as far as you're concerned, you don't even treat yourself that way, which is why you keep dating around and, 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 and defending with this one, and he might be the one. If you have to say M-I-G-H-T, then understand that it is N O T. Because God said, My spirit bears witness with your spirit. So if God is not bearing witness, and you, so you're trying to force the Holy Ghost to give you a sensation that releases you to marry the wrong person, to produce the wrong seed. Make it plain. So you want to force the Holy Ghost to do that. And I'm telling you, this has nothing to do with Christianity or not. It has everything to do with what God ordained. 
And when God ordained it, saved, unsaved, on a ship, on a boat, it, 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 it is there. And from that moment on, he takes control of that relationship. Unless you take that futuristic call and debase it with premature sex, at which point the best of what you would get, you'll never know about. As a Christian. Because I know it. I, I've had these battles with my girls. And I'm like, well, if you have to, if you got to beg God to give you a sign, then guess what? He's signing off on that. <laughs> That's his sign. And, and, and I've done it. And then they'll go and they'll do the one year or two year or whatever. They think I don't know. Because they think I don't see. Y'all do know I, drink, I do see. And I do drink. And they do that, and that's another person in their soul that they have to now speak way through to figure out if the next person that God really has is the one. You can ask. I ask this question, and you know why I'm asking this question, but the dangers of apostolic, prophetic people starting to gossip and chatter and talk up these kind of things behind the scenes and whatever. How, what is the potential fallout for that kind of, I mean, because you talk about carnality, you talk about all those things. Uh, at what point or how can you determine if what you're picking up is prophetic about people who should be together and what is not, especially especially pertaining to this because the spirits on the dating culture, seduction, sex are so empowered in our culture right now. They are. And uh, the first thing I'm going to tell you, because I'm, I'm dealing with something like that even now, the first thing I need to tell you about that is, first of all, know who you are. If you're a prophet, if you're putting your mouth on another prophet or leader or even a, a member of the flock, your mantle is going to enforce that error. That's the first, because see, the person, your purpose in a, a, a church's life or a person's life is to be their guardian. Then if you give the go-ahead, your gossip gives the go-ahead to the spirit that has brought that idea in your mind to use your mantle to exert its authority against another person. So the, one of the things that I will tell every leader, if you are a prophet, do not buy the lie. When a, when a seducing spirit comes to you and says, you know, I wonder if, if the, do you think that's your husband? And I'm going to tell you, it's a, it, that thing never stops. That machine never stops. When it says, you turn around and say, wow, and you take that as your thought, and then you take it as your idea, you have become a messenger of that error. And you have set that person, whatever the target is, up for demonic assault or harassment. So that's my first thing. When a, when a prophet can't tell me what they think, then that means you, you got that from a devil. And you need to know what, what today's prophets are not really good at understanding um, the works of the flesh. But you have to filter every word through the works of the flesh. A lot of times it's envy. Or a lot of times it's method. You're just a meddlesome prophet. So, you know, cause you, so you, you think you're a matchmaker when you're really a meddler. God calls matchmakers meddlers. He does. They're meddlers. 
because they're meddling in things they know nothing about and in things that they have no power to benefit from or to contribute or, or value to. So you have got to do that, number one. You, you cannot be a prophet picking up that gossip. You cannot be a prophet picking up those, those words from God because the devils are always trying to do that. And so that's the first thing, especially if someone is holy and someone's sanctified and someone is saying, I'm, I'm at peace with God, that devil will try to get you as a prophet to drop that guard because that devil has already put it in her head or her head that, well, it's almost time. It's all, like I, when you come to Dr. Sykes' church, if you prophesy marriage, I'm going to rebuke you. Because I don't need the romantic divination of darkness messing with my people. So I will rebuke you. And if you're a smart pastor, you'll stop that spirit from doing it because that's what causes churches to have a bunch of mismatched marriages. So that's the first step. So the next step is that, which I absolutely hate, and that is a prophet or a leader of a church should not take a follower's word on a on one of their leaders, marital anything. So if you are the prophet and she is the she, then she can't see what you see. So you should not be getting your information from her. Wow. Because she could have bias, she can have envy, she can have confusion, she could just be non prophetic, she can just be one of those people who for misery who wants company. You have to understand. So when, when, when a, a sheep comes to me about my leader, I rebuke her. You want to write a report? Let's write a report. You want to ask me a question, then you need to go to somebody who is next above you, whoever your family leader is, our church has family leaders. You need to go to them. But I refuse to take a sheep's word or accusation against my leader because you're not trained and my leader's are. So you also, so we, you know, even in a recent thing, well, I just think she likes so-and-so. I think he likes so-and-so. I kill that. And you know why? Because that's flesh. And there's no prophet on the planet that can tell me that's not flesh. And I don't need a prophet thinking like a pew person, like a, a, a sheep in the seat. I need you to understand when that sheep is being used as the weakest link that's trying to destabilize my leadership. Oh, wow. Because that's warfare. That is hard and fast warfare. There's no other, is there another way to call it? So you sit down and you have lunch with a, one of our members or guests, and folks are immediately assume that you're flirtatious. They don't. They say that's an evil eye. Mm. You don't see this thing clearly. That's an evil eye. Wow. And then you want to go and then you get around, and that thing causes all of these sheep to say, "Yeah, me too. I saw it too. Yeah, it was the same thing." Causes them to do that, and you know what? The sheep begins to dismiss the leadership mantle and abuse the authority, or to me, assault the authority of my leader. So now you're putting out lying propaganda about my leader. And you're all, you all have moved into group things, and you're all agreeing with it. So I, and when you look at them, I'm like, so what are they supposed to do? No, what you're talking about is what you would do if you were sitting with that man. <laughs> See, that's the end of the 
versions of one another's integrity and impugning one another's character is crazy. I think that we have to be careful, and it's up to us. If a sheep comes to you and says something to you about her, you need to rebuke that sheep or at least correct them. You don't have to get hard. If it's the third time, there's something different. You come in to me. But you need to correct that sheep. You, what do you know about this woman's job? What do you know about this man's business? What do you know about his, his behavior with other people? You don't know enough from your pew do. Oh, that's pew do. I don't care if you're a high official in your company, if you're not in our trainings, if you're not in our meetings, if you're not in a, a, a privy to our policies and procedures and practices, you have a pew view. And your pew view can be with someone else in the pew, but you will never be right about a leader unless that leader has become blatant in their sin. Oh, she want me to hit. Oh, hold on. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Never. See, part of what tears the church apart is because peers and colleagues are too eager to hear evil about each other. Mm. And if they accept it, it's because that evil bears witness in their heart against that peer or colleague. I believe in collaborative leadership, and our leaders are to work together. So when I hear that kind of stuff, I don't think, wow, you're being prophetic. No, I first find out, are you being seduced? Are you being mm-hmm. instrumentalized? Mm-hmm. Are you being weaponized against this leader? Huh. Because few do will weaponize against leadership. Isn't that true? Yeah. So I don't care. They can say, well, I'm sorry, you come with some pictures. It better be everybody naked. <laughs> <laughs>
So my attitude is peers and colleagues, my leadership, they are peers and colleagues. Don't bring that. No. That's pubescent and it's sophomoric. And that's disgusting. Would you say? That's sophomoric. Realize y'all ain't y'all are not in college. But I do know that the, the enemies will always try to take out a leader. And the newer the leader, the faster you're going to jump on with that. If somebody's a new leader, you need to push that down. Just, just, just oh, for the sake that you know he's vetting that new leader. And he's looking to discredit that leader's occupation of a seat.
wanting to give it to a human. You know, and so, and, and when I look at the Bible, God marries people when they're successful. I want to thank you. The majority of the time, they're successful. Isaac, age 40. Moses, that he gets this Ethiopian woman after he's gone through hell. Let's see. Glory. Okay? Adam, he names all the creatures, and then he gets a wife. So what is this meet, greet, mate, and marry thing? By 22 years old. Okay, really meet, mate, and marry. Because every time they don't even greet each other. Okay? And she said about 22. Yeah. Okay? But, the, but you think about it, because, because in the last, because this is the spirit of the last days, and they said in the last days they'll be marrying and giving and marrying as it was in the days of Noah. Now, Noah is pre-flooded, so that's a different kind of death. <laughs> okay? But anyway, did you want to say something? <laughs> Well, you're, hey, listen, you're married. Would you like to say something about what we've discussed? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, and how they just come to push them on. Come on over. Come on over. You look great. And here you Yeah, she cleaned up good. <laughs> well, um, I agree with um, what Prophet Adia said because oftentimes people will ask me, and I'm like, What's the issue? If I don't have an issue, then why are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and even the other day, someone said, well, you're so beautiful, you're so this and that. I don't understand why you're not married. I'm like, because I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And when I'm ready, then that's when I get married. Yep. Well, you know, when they make statements to me, I said, but, you know, they're, they're getting married. It's not going to bless your union at all. <laughs> so what's the truth? So y'all need to start saying, but what is it to you? You can say it nicely. So what is it to you? Or why are you asking? Oh, what are you going to do with my answer? Well, I don't think that people realize the fertility God mm-hmm. and that compulsion to do that is a fertility ritual. It is. It is. And like I said, you watch so many um, shows today. It's all, I mean, commercials can't even be about, um, um, what do you call it? Anything? About friends when it's always about a, a, a coupling. Everything is a coupling, you know? And so that in itself, but, you know, Coca-Cola got this new raunchy commercial that you almost don't know is raunchy. Where it's telling people Coke is how you get together or find a mate or get with a mate or enjoy yourself. So it's always everybody in the commercial is paired, and it's a montage. Okay? And I thought, so y'all doing what, matchmaking? But it's a matchmaking commercial. It is not about Coke. It's about matchmaking. And Levi jeans. And Levi, Levi jeans, okay? So you need to look at the commercials because they are taking up the advertising work of the matchmaking uh, uh, culture or, or what is a business, that's what I want, in our world. So I can't have a coke if I don't have a mate.
I have a number one wearing a fair life? So I need twin pairs of Levi's in order for it to work? So, well, guess what? I'll find out who else is making jeans. Well, in, a whole, in a whole commercial, people, that's a, everything, well, you know, that's the whole sodomy, right? The subtle sodomy seduction, you know, where everything is about somebody's behind. Everything. You know, it used to be the booth, now because everybody's got a butt. Sure. See, everybody's got a brush. So you actually get there, didn't you? So the point is, why am I saying this? Because Christians, you're, you, you cannot be drawn in. If we're called to be the light of the world, then we need to be the light on that darkness. Yeah. You know, everybody, all of a sudden, everything is somebody's behind. So I, I told you my, my, my most, <laughs> the most ludicrous thing is when a woman sees a man walk by with a long overcoat talking about cute butts. Okay. Yeah. Y'all crazy. Unless you were in that butt before he put on a coat, you can't know that. So that's not what I meant, though. It, it came out wrong. Hold on. Guys. Hey, <laughs> But I mean, you talk about, and men wearing baggy pants, you talk about cute butts. And they're not even dropped down under the butt. So you can at least say, I got to do But you understand the stupidity of darkness, and it's banking on your stupidity for its success, and your naivety, and Christian gullibility, and inferiority. Why do I say inferiority? Because you will buy into that because you're pulling your identity from that image. So so they're working on image-driven identity, not substance, not even essence, but image-driven identity. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be like, it's a be-like movement. Or a big like that. Oh, you have all of these movies, all of these romance movies, and they all are the same template with different faces. And you look at those and you're like, but see, I want to be like, I want, I want to be able to, I want to, I want to, I want to come home with it. I want to hold my baby. I want to get, and, and all of that is the sickness of your soul that they're exploiting yeah. for monetary reasons. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to be any happier with someone else who's telling you you're always unhappy than you are with being unhappy alone.
should have asked God. He would have told you three years in, you're going to be miserable. Because you're going to find out that the things that made them happy have been either satisfied or have been replaced with what makes them comfortable with their depression, which is a soulological toxicity. And so next thing you know, you're running back and forth for, for doctor treatments, and you're running back and forth for prescriptions, and you're like, but I didn't sign up for this. But you got it, and you got it because you married for the moment and not for your purpose or destiny. Because if God wants you to do something for him long-term, he's going to give you somebody with a sound and sober mind, heart, and spirit. God is about soundness. He's about sobriety. So if he didn't intervene, it's because either you didn't let him. I remember my first husband. I got him when I was, you know, 17. He was 25, fresh back from Vietnam. And, but, but you, he, you know, he would tell me the war stories. I was all fascinated with war stories. You can tell that was crazy. But, and I remember getting ready, coming down, and he said, just a couple of days, maybe a week or so before our match, he used to start yelling at me. He would start pushing me. He would start shoving me. And all of a sudden, I could do very little to please him, but then he would do it, and he'd come back and buy me all these gifts and buy me all these things and just tell me how special I am and whatnot. So I wanted to be married because, you know, that's the thing. You want to be married. And so I said, grab this. So, I um and I remember I was not saved and I had been baptized so maybe Jesus took it as salvation I don't know but I I remember walking through my house and this voice said Artemis Artemis don't marry him and I said this was my answer I said but my mother has already put out all this money on the way I have to marry him and I tell you from wedding night till we ended that man abused me. Now, some of you all out there had the same voice and ignored it. Or some of you, you had a mentor, a mother, a father, or somebody who told you. But that man was not for my future. He was for my present. And my present discomfort with singleness, my present discomfort with not having what everybody else had, not being satisfied with the, the illusory picture that's painted. And it was a horrible, horrible, horrible marriage. I got, you know, some wonderful kids, but humble marriage. And I tell women all the time, there is not one marriage that God doesn't want because he has a better a better spouse for you that is aligned with your destiny that God doesn't tell you don't do it. Because God can't, he has to be Alpha and Omega. When people say, well, he didn't tell me, no, Alpha and Omega, I don't care if it was the girlfriend that you said was jealous. Oh, you just don't want me to marry him because you're just jealous because you ain't got nobody. Because, you know, women fall on the jealous thing all the time. You're just jealous. you just because you want my man. No, no, baby, I'm trying to tell you. I don't even want you to answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it so sweet? So it's so sweet. Somebody get somebody in there. Show to me your free marriage counsel. I'll tell you. Just say somebody. Cash app is the handle there is Dr. Paul Price, or you can so via PayPal, paypal.me. Slash Dr. Paul Price. You can also be text to give today, 918-608-1378, 918-608-1378. This is powerful, powerful teaching. And even, I mean, even going all the way back to we come as seeds and we leave as humans. Y'all know this is <laughs> And then some. Today. Yeah, so you can sow a seed uh, right now. Rachel's put it on the screen for you guys. 
Listen, thank you. First of all, let me say thank you for all of you who have been so many seeds. I really appreciate it. You need to know that this is good ground. You know it's good ground because I bring you the word of God every week, whether or not there is a seed. Now, I just thank God that you sow into this. Somebody, I, I just saved you from marrying the wrong person or marrying impulsively. That says the Holy Ghost. Someone else, I have just given you the authority to obey the call of God on your life. So that God does not have to turn on you and judge you for idolatry, idol worship. Now you're gonna now understand some of you all. The reason you did this is because you're in that word of faith, charismatic evangelical camp that says marriage is above all else. They'll tell you put God first, and then say put your marriage over God. You understand that that's, that's talking out of two sides of your mouth. So, but I've just helped you do that. I've also helped you understand how God views your decisions, why divorces happen. Divorce don't, don't happen on the day that the marriage ends. Divorce happen on the day that the decision to marry the wrong person was made. So you're, you were doomed. So is, is your present engagement doomed? So I need you a lot to work with. Make sure you sow those seeds. That's because that's what I get spiritual, you sow that material, we both get a harvest. And I know you want me more to get a harvest off of the truth and the revelation I share with you. All right, until Sunday, remember Sunday at the Congregation of the Mighty, 8 o'clock Sunday school, 10 o'clock Sunday service. If you're in the area, pop in. Bring some friends. And you do know we broadcast. We usually start about 11. Yeah, we start about 11 at broadcast after Sunday school. So we let, we let her go get something to snack on. And then no, really, Oh. <laughs> I love you guys. I want you to say that. I, just hear me. I love you. I haven't met you, you all personally, but I love you. And I love you because I dream about you. I love you because God puts you in my spirit. Sometimes I'm surprised that I see something in my spirit and then you're on my Facebook. So, uh, so understand, we have a strong relationship, a strong bond, and for us to go and take this particular message to God's people to be his witnesses in all the earth. God bless you. Have a great weekend.